You're listening to the Sensemaking Podcast. I'm McLean. This episode is brought to you by Inquire, a public benefit corporation on a mission to help the world make sense. Inquire creates tools that leverage the best principles from cognitive science to help you navigate life with clarity and to seek a deeper understanding about yourself, about life, and about the world. Inquire is currently offering an eight-week sense-making intensive where you'll tackle the backlog of everything that's been bothering you or that feels unresolved in your life while using state-of-the-art tools to accelerate the process and while learning essential cognitive skills that you can leverage for the rest of your life. To learn more, there is a link to the sense-making intensive in the description of this episode. In this episode, I sit down with Jill Nephew to speak to a question that you might be having as you're first coming to know more about sense-making as something that can help you in your life. And this question might be, you know, there are tons and tons of systems and approaches, practices, and solutions that exist out in the world that are all marketed at helping you with your personal growth and well-being. So is sense-making just another one of these systems? And in this episode, we're going to go in depth from a cognitive science perspective about what makes sense-making fundamentally different from being just another one of these systems out there, and why sense-making is the most important skill or set of skills that you need in order to successfully navigate your own life. So let's begin. So I'm imagining that I'm just coming to learn about sense-making. Mm-hmm. And from my perspective, if I'm taking the role of someone who's just learning about sense-making, just hearing about sense-making, it sounds like, you know, one of many other things out there in terms of something that I can learn to improve my life or learn to change the way I think. There's a lot of things out there that have are based on different ideologies or some person's idea of how things should work or their theory or their system. Mm-hmm. Lots of systems. So I'm skeptical. How is sense-making not the same as everything else out there? Yeah, first speaking to that point, that's a really big deal, right? That a lot of people are in this kind of fatigue, system fatigue, right? So many systems, thousands of techniques and methods and traditions and religions. And how does anyone really choose to begin with, right? And, and And I know a lot of people personally are walking around having tried a whole bunch of things. And again, this is like, you know, all these things, what are they trying to do for you? Right. Like, what, what are they trying to solve for you? They all have big promises, right? I mean, there's, if, you, if we just took the class of all the things that are promising, like self-actualization or realization or feeling great or thriving or in the, in the zone or flow, I mean, from diet systems to meditation systems to personal growth, transformative weekends, retreats, it's like kind of endless, Right. I mean, if, if you just step back from all that and you look at all that and you just say, yeah, how it's, you just got this one body, one person, how, how on earth can there be so many systems and how, and how does a person choose? It's quite overwhelming. And then on top of that, right. I think as you go through life, um, anyone who's interested in growth or transformation, I don't know how, I don't know how anyone wouldn't be at some point in their life, probably thinking, well, should I try to tackle this? Should I track, try to tackle some sort of general improvement to myself. Like, you know, most people have kind of 
sampled or, or, or done some set of them, not just one, but many from maybe religions they've been part of or therapy processes they've tried. So many people have, have, have tried a whole bunch of these and I think there's very few people that kind of come out the other side saying, ah, okay, I don't need to ever try anything else again. That really was it. I think they, the the general, for most people, you know, they're left feeling like, well, there's clearly more to do here. Let me try another system. Right. And there's even the existence of people offering their curation of systems oh, right. or things you can do like toolkits for right. personal growth or totally. um, curated guides to like all the best books on personal growth or self-help or spirituality. Right. Like, like your background, right? Life hacking. Right. Like, like, you have a strong background in, in, uh, attempting to curate those and trying to do best in class and best in breed and right. vet them and, and use scientific basis to separate the wheat from the chaff and, and all that, right? Life hacking is one way to try to solve this problem of the sea of overwhelming options and solutions for improving yourself or getting your best life or living the optimal life. And the problem with that is that there's so much in this space that is snake oil. Right. There's so much in this space that doesn't actually work or it works in very specific narrow ways that aren't acknowledged. Well, I, I think you're touching on something really important. So now, you know, the whole, the whole way we approach this, this podcast and this series is to try to do sense making the whole time we're talking. So let's, let's step back on that a little bit and say, what makes something snake oil and how would we know? And so, right. So we have this giant proliferation of things and, and to be kind to them. I don't, I think even if we took, you know, even if we took everyone as well-meaning, they may be accidentally snake oil. How would you end up being accidentally snake oil? Like you thought you weren't snake oil, but you are snake oil. And that points right at the placebo effect. And uh, the placebo effect, you know, is outrageously powerful when it comes to psychological, the psychological dimension. The, you know, it, it, the placebo effect's still there for pure healing, like pure healing a broken bone. There's, maybe you'll not realize, realize this. There's still a placebo effect. You still heal better with some um, belief in the healing process for your bones, right? But if you believe in a healing process for your psyche, now you're talking massive, massive changes just in that. So most people are familiar with the placebo effect from this idea of like, you know, one group of people in a study will take the real drug, the other group of people in the study will take a sugar pill, but they'll believe they're taking the real drug. And then they look at, you know, the effects of, both groups to see the actual efficacy of the drug over the placebo and that the kind of crazy thing that often happens is that the placebo actually gets some effect. Right. And in in the psychological realm, depression in particular, the placebo effect is immense. It's onward 85 plus percent is about believing in your treatment. So what does it say that another way? So that basically means it means like when you look at, again, uh, there's entire books on, very good books on this. Robert Whitaker's work overall addresses this, the problem with psychiatric drugs efficacy. Um, but if your only measure of success is to do a trial with a drug for something like depression against a placebo, you have to account for 
a giant placebo effect onward of 85%. So meaning that if I can convince you this pill will relieve your, your depression for a while, that's all you need to know, which kind of points out for depression in particular, maybe like the hallmark of it is a hopelessness, right? And so what the, what you're saying is you have hope, you've restored hope that you will escape this state. So in, in the interesting, tragic way, there's kind of this, um, feedback or this implicit tragedy to depression that a large component of it is believing you won't escape it. There's a lot of people taking medication for mental illness. So you're saying that, you know, given this 85% placebo, you know, most of the people who are taking medication for their mental illness is, is potentially attributed to their belief in that That is the criticism, is that you can explain away giant swaths of it. Um, And there's something called an enhanced placebo effect, which says that if you give them a pill that has some noticeable side effects, then people also know that they're on a drug. They believe even more they're on a drug. So then you get even stronger response. So so there's a lot of people that kind of guess that they aren't really in the drug condition if they're part of a trial. Mm -hmm. So if you can really convince them by throwing in some side effects, then... So basically, you see that drugs with side effects have a longer, a stronger um, effect. Interesting. So then, what happens if these, you know, wear off? Well, so that's the thing that I think is really interesting about placebo research. Almost all these psychological drugs are limited time trials, and the placebo effect has a, an amount of time, right? There's an amount of time when you believe something's working for you, and then after a while, you're like, well, you know, I'm kind of seeing things haven't really changed, and it fades. The interesting thing is the length of time of a placebo is longer than the average length of time of a drug trial. So a lot of the drug data out there doesn't actually fully wait for what could be the fade of a placebo effect. And that's another, you know, one of these strong criticisms of the psychiatric drugs because they don't have a known mechanism. They don't act on a known biological mechanism. There's nothing where you'd say, your depression is causally related to this other than a correlation, you know, that when these certain brain chemicals are in certain amounts, you tend to feel a certain way. And so they adjust those and you feel different. Um, It could just be that you feel different in such a way that you believe your life is better. And, uh, and so um, if that fades, you know, if that fades after some amount of time that hasn't been measured, uh, you are then left with the possibility that when you remove the drug, you actually have done something in your brain that's not so great. Like you may have, for instance, blocked its ability to do sense-making, which would not be very good. So that, that could be happening. And so that, none of that's being measured, right? So none of that is really being addressed. So that's the criticism of a lot of the psychiatric drugs is that they aren't really doing enough science to differentiate themselves and that the, the risk for the net positive is not large enough. So right now we're trying to answer this question of what makes something snake oil and how the problem of when you look out in this domain of personal growth solutions, you find lots of snake oil. You find it a lot in this domain. And you find that you have no choice. If you don't have, and this comes back to our big map of sense making, if your only tool to figure out if something works is a randomized controlled trial where you take a person, you say, I'm going to have you do toe yoga for eight weeks where you're going to twist your toes in really interesting ways and there's some magical property that has that's going to make you feel better against a control where we say we're not going to do the toe yoga yet we're going to see how it goes you know 
and say, well, look, the toe yoga people feel better. Like if that's your only tool, you can't discriminate. You can't discriminate a legitimate from not legitimate. The way you can discriminate snake oil from not snake oil is science, which means real science, which is not about data. It's about saying, can you explain the mechanism and can we test the mechanism? Can we say, is this a real mechanism you're speaking to and can we test it? So that was a that was present a lot in my time in the life hacking world, where in the efforts to try to separate the good stuff from the bad stuff, the stuff that was going to work, that wasn't going to work, there's always a very rigorous approach to try to look at what was scientifically validated, what had the best studies. And unfortunately, you know, as we are living in a world with a very data first, lower level cognitive way of looking at things and way of looking at trying to find truth, this wasn't always like the best approach. In retrospect, yes. Yeah, it wasn't always the best approach to try to look at the data in terms of what was working. And I feel like for our listeners, um, we're, we're speaking to higher and low, lower level cognition in the, in the using the, the lens of Judea Pearl's work on the Book of Why, and we have a whole episode on that uh, that you can refer back to. Um, it, you might want to listen to that one before this one to be able as a, really it's worthwhile to listen to that one before any of our episodes to understand how we're speaking about sense making in the broadest sense. Yeah. So that's actually available in the first episode, episode one, where we talk about the higher, lower levels of cognition along with the, the revolution in cognitive science and how our understanding of the brain and the minds has dramatically changed in the last couple of decades. Right. And, and along with that, how there's been a causal revolution in the sciences where they were kind of stuck in the only tool they had was like the randomized control trial, this, this data centric view in which you cannot make a distinction between snake oil and not snake oil. So, so what we have is we have this accumulated momentum of that problem. We have an accumulated momentum of that problem where we had decades of interventions and systems and ideas that were supposedly scientifically validated, but only in this way that a random control trial found more of an effect where there are, to use this, the language of statistics, a lot of confounds, meaning there are other ways to explain that the efficacy, what the efficacy was, and if the ex efficacy is something like the placebo effect where I've, I've read one interesting frame on that where they call it the meaning effect, where you give meaning to the thing and you believe it's meaningful, it will meaningfully help, help you. If that's what's happening is you just simply believe in it, you know, the power of believing in something, then there's a lot of cleaning up to do. There's a lot of cleaning up to do of all those, those methods. Be and, and so this brings us to the next point, which I think is, is, well, sorry, it brings us back to a point we had earlier, which is that it's not harmless to engage in these systems that the, where the way they're help quote unquote helping you is through you believing them. Right. That was actually exactly what I was going to ask. So me as the, me as the skeptical listener, I'm listening to this and I'm saying, well, if, if the placebo effect and if believing in something will work actually makes it work some, what's the problem? Right. And you hear that a lot. Like what's the problem? In fact, that's just a giant debate. And still quite active of like, why not just prescribe a sugar pill or an antibiotic when against a viral infection is a classic one where people just, which just does have an obvious problem, but the idea that a doctor will, people will feel better if you give them a pill, that's what they're, that's what they believe in. So you give them what they believe in. What's the harm? 
So there's a paper that came out that was on this and talked about really stepping back, what is the placebo effect? And they really reframed it as a kind of meaning response that you're really, when it works, you it's not just the neutral mechanism. It's not just this magic ethereal voodoo that you actually are ascribing some sort of meaning to it. So for instance, you know, if someone in a lab coat comes in, you know, that's a meaningful thing. Like they're, they know something, you trust their authority. They're a healer, you know, white coat and um, a stethoscope means something. And when they tell you something, it means something. And so if you start to look through this lens and say, well, can we control for the placebo effect? That's how you should be looking for it. So that was a really interesting paper called Deconstructing the Placebo Effect and Finding the Meaning Response, which will be in our show notes. And so fairly recently, 2014, there's this paper that addressed that head on. Like, is it harmless? Is it harmless to engage in placebos? The paper is called Expectancy, Self-Efficacy, and Placebo Effect of a Sham Supplement for Weight Loss in Obese Adults. And that's in our show notes. And in this paper, basically what they did was they gave people a sham pill for weight loss. And, you know, obviously the pill um, worked then didn't work. You know, um, long-term they didn't lose weight. Uh, And what they were looking for was how did this affect people's overall sense of self-efficacy, which is a really important measure, right? It's a, it's a, how effective do you feel in your life? How much do you feel like you can trust yourself? And so what they found, which, you know, again, just speaking, this is common sense now, you know, that they, they validated this very common sense thing is that when you believe in something is going to help you and you try it out and some, the culture tells you it's supposed to help you, and it doesn't help you, you take partial responsibility for that failure. Uh, because you have, this, you have this belief that you are in control of your success because you have the self-efficacy. Right. So, you know, you failed as part of the failure of the thing. And so you become demoralized about your ability to help yourself in a much more global way than just the, that failure. So you're starting to tap out like a really fundamental belief in your own ability to help yourself every time you accidentally participate with a placebo. Wow. So you could easily imagine that if how someone could come to a state in their life where they feel completely helpless, they give away all authority to how to solve things in their life to everything else out there but themselves. That could happen, or they could just be cynical and they don't give authority to themselves or anybody else. <laughs> you know, I mean, they, they probably also maybe simultaneously, you know, have become quite cynical that there is anything out there and less likely or willing to participate in another system. Uh, you know, so it's, but it's, you don't just get, you, you, you are likely to not just get wise. And there's a lot of pain between, between fresh fresh and, and hopeful and cynical where and very skeptical and skeptical skepticism, right? There's a, there's a whole, a whole journey in there where you're kind of getting knocked out too. You may hide it, but you're also getting knocked out. You don't believe that you have it in you maybe to transform your life because of these failures. Right. Okay. So we are, you know, we're talking about this huge problem of the personal growth space and all of these, and mental health and well-being, the well-being space, I guess, yeah. in general. 
Well, yes, and specifically we're talking about with regards to the um, psyche because that's where the placebo effect's so huge, mm-hmm. right? Anything having to do with the psyche versus again, like you know, weight loss or healing a bone, you're 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 have a much lower. It's it's easier to separate. It's easier to find the mechanisms. It's easier to separate the wheat from the chaff. The placebo effect is smaller. There are real mechanisms at, at play that you can eventually reveal. But in, yeah, in this personal growth space, spiritual work or um, religious domain of religious um, transcendence, evolution, whatever you know, whatever you're getting from uh, participating in a, a a religious movement as well, like all of these all these realms of the psyche are very difficult to vet. That seems important to point out, like how, you know, when we say uh, the realm of the psyche or psychological well-being, I think it's easy to feel like that's a smaller area of than it. That it's easy for that to sound like a smaller domain than it is. Right. But in reality, when you really look at so much of, you know, it, even when you like go into the bookstore and you go to the section all about self-help and you look at all those books there, Right. There's so much about that, about the content in those pages that are having to do with your psychology, your right. way of seeing the world, the beliefs that you have about yourself that you're wrong that you need to change, the beliefs you have about, and then the key here is that this overlaps into all these other domains of our personal life that don't seem psychological at first, like wealth, finances, relationships, relationships, career your, success, your body, you know, yeah. your fitness. Productivity was a big is a big one, right? The ability to get stuff done, effectiveness, be likable, yeah, be charismatic. Uh, you know, all the yeah, the, it, it ends up being this 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 giant um, ideology that you're that everyone, whether they like it or not, are are having to discriminate between and collect for themselves and try out. I mean, in some ways, you can't opt out either. It's very hard to opt out from uh, an ideology having some ideology about all this you know you you're you're expected to weigh in uh and and if you don't want to adopt one of these ideologies if you don't want to be adopt an ideology from say a religion you're raised with or a science you studied or uh, you know uh, something you picked up through your career development or relationship workshop (laughs) if you want to fend all those off that's quite a you have to work really hard at that. You have to actually fend them off quite actively. So, so everyone kind of has this problem of, of of having something in there, some collection of these things that they believe are the key to a good life versus not good life, or better versus worse. Right. So we're we're so we're looking at this big problem of, and really is like the realm of you know personal growth and psychological well-being or the psychology or the psyche and even overall well-being but the psychological component of overall well-being right right and so we're talking about this sense and like there's this problem of the sea of solutions out there for people who are trying to pursue personal growth through this lens of well-being especially in particular psychological well-being and um and then we've talked about this kind of huge problem of the placebo effects and snake oil and how you know it's kind of bringing up this problem of like, how do you, um, you know, do you just throw it all out? And if so, like what is left? Like, how do you, if, if it's not that, if it's not this sea of options and solutions that, you know, are, have issues with validating them with science or not, and then the 
challenge of the placebo effect. You know, it sounds like, what do you do? What do you do? Right. Yeah. And I think, I think also it's, I mean, people aren't really speaking about it, but it leaves you quite in quite of a mess of like, you know, everyone's trying to get at the truth here with these things. And, um, and if you care, you kind of have to surrender to being like a hobbyist. Like it has to be kind of your hobby that I'm going to read about this system or this tradition or this, you know, it's like, it, bec it becomes your hobby, like, or an intellectual pursuit at best if as a way to proceed in this mess, right? It's like, well, I'll just take it on as like a, a side project that I'll be become very well read or whatever. And yeah, with, without any tools for discrimination, basically to say, well, you don't want the truth to be a hobby. You, you know, when we all want to really arrive at what actually works. So if I put back on my hat of the skeptical listener right here yeah. and I'm coming to this podcast and I'm listening and I'm hearing about sense-making for the first time. And it sounds like, you know, I'm being proposed sense-making as something that isn't this. And to me, that's like, okay, that seems like a hard sell. Yeah. Prove it. Yeah. Prove it. Why, why would sense-making, what is sense-making? How do I, how should I think of sense-making if it's not just another ideology or system? Right. Um, and maybe Maybe we didn't even make that clear. That is what we're proposing. We are proposing that sense-making is special. We're proposing there's one thing that's special. Oh, my God. Get ready, you know? And and I think it's the kind of thing where people should be skeptical. Like, be as skeptical as, as, skeptical as you can be. I think people should be skeptical because the bigger, the bigger the scrutiny, the bigger the payout, if it's true. If it's true that sense-making is special. Because like I, if it truly is special, that's really a big deal. It's a big deal. It's a big deal if it can stand up to that scrutiny. So we'd, we'd say everything should be scrutinized of what makes you special. And we should say take your best shot, throw everything you have at trying to tear down sense-making and, and, and say it's not special. Like We think it can hold up and, uh, uniquely. That you can uniquely hold up, and that's what we're going to talk about next. But... But basically, that's that's what we'd that's what we, I would love. I would love for the listeners to be absolutely like throwing everything they have. Like absolutely not. I don't buy it. This has got to be another ideology. This has got to be another system. This has got to be no different than everything else. And I want I want with that focus to try to speak to why why it might be different. So the way that I'd like to dig into this, if I put on my skeptical listener hat, yeah. is first I need a, I need to know how should I think of sense making. So it's almost like I need a bit of a definition, but I also need to just have a way to think about what it actually is. Like, is it a you know a set of tools, or is it approach, or is it some sort of set of skills? Like, what is sense making? Okay, so when we talk about sense making, we're talking about a, again a cognitive process from which you go from not confusion about your sensory input to whatever it is that makes you feel as though you've made sense of it, <laughs> you know, like, and I think that, you, you know, if we just start with the senses, sight and sound, it's quite obvious, right? If I say, you what? know, right. That's, we, that's the experience of the urge to make sense of that. You have an urge to make sense of it. You have, it doesn't fit your map. Mm -hmm. When something's clear, it fits the map. So our brain is just constantly, constantly from birth doing this process of getting input and getting to where it, it adds up 
and nothing elicits that response of like, what, or where am I, or what's happening or what, why that happened? We're always trying to minimize that. That's, Mm -hmm. we're always trying to, from day one, you know, as part of life and existence, understand the environment we're in so that we can navigate it and live in it in the purest form from what we're learning, the latest on cogsci and systems and plants and slime mold and these organisms, it is not so clear anymore how to separate life from cognition. To live, there is a sense-making process. To be in an amoeba and know what direction to go, to go eat some little microbe or whatnot, like you have to have some kind of cognitive process that will tell you, what are you, what's that, Where should I go and what should I do? Okay, so already it sounds like the way to think of sense-making is it's not some sort of, you know, set of steps that someone came up with for how to, you know, make sense. It's actually something that is intrinsic to us, intrinsic to our way of thinking somehow that goes back to birth. It's not like a, it's not like some additionally learned thing or some like system that someone came up with. That's right. It's very much tied to the definition of what living systems do to live. So how, how do we know this? I mean, that's a pretty big kind of assertion that sense-making is just something that we all naturally do. Can you help me fill that in? Can you fill that in more about like, how, how do we like, how do we know that this is something that's naturally born in us? So it's not about how do we know it's how do we define it? So we don't, there's, you don't have to know anything. You just have to say, we're pointing at whatever it is that magically enables life to live, (laughs) you know, like, like that's what we're pointing at. There's, there's something a plant does to figure out, to point its leaves towards the sun. There's something an amoeba does to move. There's, there's something that happens that says this thing has made sense of their environment such that they can take an action that increases their ability to live and to thrive. That is what sense-making is, is the process that living things do to be able to live. If they can't do it, they don't live. I see. If they, if you can't make sense of, you know, your environment, right. then how are you supposed to know how to find food? Exactly. Yes. What to avoid, how to not be eaten. Okay, what direction so. to go? You, have, you don't know what to do. And if you don't move and you don't animate, you have no animus, you have no life. Right. So, okay, now I kind of understand the connection you're making to sight. Like, obviously, there's this thing that we do with our eyes. Right. This, this kind of gets us, yeah. So, there's, so to give people a felt sense of what I'm talking about, so, you know, that's kind of an outward conceptual description, but the experience we have of it is we're constantly... Like, I can't place the face. I think I've met you before. That you, you can, there's a visceral, you wake up in a strange hotel on a business trip or with jet lag. And that the, sometimes it's really protracted minutes of like in, being in this, like, I don't recognize my surroundings. And all my brain wants to do right now is say, I recognize, I recognize my surroundings so I can function again. So I know what to do. I don't know if I'm a threat. I don't know where I am. I mean, I even know who I am, <laughs> you know, there's times when you wake up from a deep sleep, you have to even remember kind of who you are or what your life is. Right. 
So that, so you, you know, we have these direct experiences of a brain, your brain going from things not making sense to making sense. That is the exact process we're talking about. That is the sense making process. And so we're saying, you know, overall that that's what we're pointing at. And then the next question is, is that something you have any control over? So sense-making is describing some process, some cognitive process that we do to make sense of our, of our environments. And it's inborn. We've had it since day one. So what's the problem? Why aren't we just, like, why do we need to talk about sense-making if we're all just doing it? Like, why, if it's just something innate to us? Right. So I think that what is interesting is if you talk about it as a process and you ask, are there things that block it and things that enable it? And you look around in modern culture, you can, you can answer that question. You say, oh my God, there are things that are blocking it and things that are enabling it. And we have some choice in that. And that's why we should talk about it because there are things we can address. And when you can't make sense of things because the ability has been blocked, that is not a pleasant place to be. You know, I mean, you're, you're not thriving, you're not living, you're in confusion, various levels of confusion, and you're probably hurting and suffering because you don't, cannot orient or make sense of your environment or figure out what to do or how to move. So that's, that's, that's why it's worth talking about. If there were nothing that controlled it, if we couldn't start pointing at things that control it and turn it on and off, it wouldn't, it would just be a curiosity. But because there are things that, that seem to block it and enable it, now all of a sudden it becomes a really important thing to talk about. And maybe the most important thing to talk about because it is as fundamental as life. So on a future episode, we're going to talk more about what actually blocks sense-making. But here we're really going to try to still kind of go with this question of what, why is sense-making different from some system or ideology amidst mixed in with the sea of everything else out there. That's and, right. And so far we've kind of made this first cut. Well, the one main difference is that sense-making is this innate, intrinsic, natural, cognitive process that we've been doing since day one, and that it's, it's fundamental to our ability to navigate our lives. We have to make sense. We have to do this process of sense-making to make sense of our environment so that we can navigate, you know, navigate our lives, navigate away from things that are bad from us, bad for us, navigate towards things that are good for us. Right. Quite fundamentally. And so the downstream effects of not being able to make sense of things are myriad and many of them are, are covered by all these other domains and systems, right? So, you know, if you were better at sense making, would you naturally pick a better workout routine? Would you naturally have better relationships? Would you naturally find yourself less psychologically distraught or bothered? You know, all, all, that, We'll definitely speak to that in another podcast, but we're saying that at a fundamental level, sense-making is special because of it explains so many downstream effects. But I feel like now what we're talking about, now that we know what sense-making is, the next question is that, you know, okay, so it was, it was proposed, you know, we're, we're asserting that, that there are things that block it and things that make it enable it and make it better. And so now we're saying that, that there could be a system for addressing both of those. There could be a system for addressing those. And how do you know now that system for addressing those things isn't now back in the sea of all the other systems? Okay, so now I'm starting to understand this a little bit better. So 
So we've got the sense-making process that's this like intrinsic innate thing that we already do. And then there's also this dimension of there's things that can block it or stop the sense-making process. And then there are things that can enable or enhance the sense-making process. And those things that operate on the sense-making process could be seen as other systems. And this is also what we're going to talk about now. There exists an approach that transcends or is is of a different class than all those systems. A system for sense-making that is, is qualitatively different and in that it does not have an ideology. That's a pretty outrageous statement, but that has no ideology. So all the other systems, you know, would be to a lesser or greater degree have embedded in them some system of thought, some ideology around how the world works baked in and we're positing so far, it's just a proposal. The, reader, the listener doesn't have any idea what we're talking about, but that there is a way to build a system that doesn't have that. So that doesn't have the, an ideology, which I guess to fill in more about, you know, specifically how we're defining an ideology or how we are understanding what an ideology is. So it's a map, right? And it's, a, it, and they're, they're fantastic things. Ideologies are fantastic. They're scientific theories. There's people having direct experience and figuring things out, groups of people figuring things out and they're figuring out how things work. You know, there's good ones and bad ones, but there's crazy ones, but there's some really good ones. But at the end of the day, they all came from people using their higher level cognition to try to figure out how the world works. So they have figured out a map and they want to share their maps and people get a lot of use out of sharing maps. So these systems are very helpful. You'll really enjoy the maps, you know, for a while. The wet systems? All the systems. You know, all of the systems to a later, lesser or greater degree, they, they all have some sort of map. Like many of them have some sort of map of how things work. Like let's take CBT. It has some map of how things work. Its map says that thoughts are intrusive and, um, and that they tend to, or can be, you know, intrusive and that they tend to be distorted and that, you know, you can use these various techniques to reframe and, and, and try to listen for different parts of the thought. And that can be helpful. And that's, that's part of, that's a map that can be helpful until it's not. Right. And then when it stops working, then we have this problem of like, if you're trying to address it greater than where it can work and you fail, then we're back in that sad, not necessarily snake oil, but an incomplete map that has left people with um, a reduced, potentially reduced sense of self-efficacy and greater cynicism and more hopelessness about addressing the greater thing they're trying to address. So these, so there's kind of a concept, David Chapman uh, popularizes this a lot that, you know, every map is incomplete. And so what to do that everyone's got these maps and they're, they're to a lesser or greater degree applicable to your life, or they are for a while than they aren't. And they're all of these systems, all these, a lot of these systems have maps. Um, and so what to do that there's, there's so many of these and that they, uh, don't eventually wear themselves out eventually your life gets bigger than them. So people individually, you know, everybody, everyone gets a shot. Every human being actually, whether they publish it or not, whether they just define their own system or not, they have a shot at saying, I've existed, I've been in the world, I've had an experience of the world, here's how I make sense of it. And if I ended up somewhere good from somewhere bad, and I can tell you I was somewhere bad, now I'm somewhere good, you see it all over the place, you'll say, well, how'd you do it? Show me your map. I'll do it like you did it. And so you got tons and tons of people out there that say, you know, um, here's how I did it, and you can do it this way too. Or people that are trying to look at 
someone successful and deconstruct their map from the outside somehow with only the information that they are given from the outside perspective and then say, here's, you know, the secrets of, you know, fill in the blank, successful person. Here's all, here's all all you have to do to become the next fill in the blank. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, I mean, this is fine. It fills up our whole, you know, I mean, it's fine till it's not fine. We talked about all the shortcomings, but you know, in a way, this is also where we find all, all our useful metaphors and examples and we try things out and whatnot, you know? So it's really great that we all share these things, but when you try to elevate one above all the others, I think that's where uh, people start to feel burned. So, um, so then the question is like, you know, is there a way, is there, is there a map that, that transcends all maps? Is there, um, anything that would escape from this? Is there any, any one map that deserves such elevation? And we're going to audaciously, outrageously say, give ours, give this a shot. We're gonna throw our hat in the ring of like, we, we think sense-making would be the only one that could stand up to that, that could be elevated. So we're saying, uh, yeah, so I'm saying a system for sense-making is different than any other system. It is possible to build a system for sense-making that is different than any other system. And we're going to describe how we are, we will promise actually get to that. (laughs) We'll describe how to build a system for sense-making that doesn't, that is not about maps. And I mean, I guess to, to the simplest way to, to introduce this, what if you had a system for map making? Ah. Would that be different? So you're saying, well, every map's incomplete. Every system is about applying a map. And if you say, well, not if you built a system that isn't about applying a map, but it's a system about building a map. And so how would you... Already, I think the listener can probably get a qualitative sense. Like you're given no map. You're giving a system, a a set of Mm -hmm. processes to follow to reveal a map. It's going to be a bit abstract. There's no way around it. But a really simple way to think about this is the difference between having a bunch of equations out there that explain how the world works that you can apply from economists saying it works this way to epidemiologists now saying it works this way or all these equations floating around, physicists saying this thing, and you know, everyone's got their equations. You learned how to generate equations in school, algebra, how to write equations and solve equations and quadratic equations and Pythagorean. And, and so that these things describe the real world. I can have an equation for how bread rises or how, the, the, how much water the plant needs. You know, you can do equations anywhere. And people say, well, oh my God, I got thousands and thousands of equations and none of them have really like fixed my life. And then, you know, this would be like saying, well, we'll teach you math. You don't have to rely on anyone's equations. You can do your own. So a system for learning math is different than applying a system of equations to your life. This actually also reminds me of something personally that I think relates to this, which is recently I decided to buy a compass. Right. And I decided to buy a compass because, you know, I have this little bit of a thing around, you know, self-reliance and sort of survival skills. And having not had to rely on anything, you know, more than my phone for navigation for a long time, um, or before that thinking about maps, there's actually, you know, a whole way to use a compass as a tool and a, a and a way of using that compass so that you don't actually need a map to navigate. 
And that was something that was actually surprisingly powerful that I could use this one single compass and I could use a, a couple techniques where I could just look and find the spot on, in my environment of where I wanted to navigate to. And using this tool and some principles, I could effectively get myself to that point, even if it was miles away or within my... Or not in your line of sight, which is really cool. Right. Like as soon as you lost sight of it, I mean, we did that together. Yeah. As soon as you lost sight of it, you still knew which way to go. You could still yeah. navigate even though you couldn't see it. Yeah. That was really cool. So this is kind of like what we're talking about. Like you're not actually getting a map. You're getting some tool or... Um, to chart for, out your own map. Yeah. Or framework to how to you know build the map in the first place right. without getting lost. Right. To kind of find your way as you go. Right. So, so, you know, that is what humans do. We're map building. And so uh, just about all the systems out there are about ex exchanging maps, which is a good thing to do. It's a fantastic thing to do, exchange maps. And then what we're saying is that many of the systems, kind of recapping again, that are popularized are people elevating maps that they really like. Uh, maybe science really likes those maps. And we're saying that we're talking about in the process of trying to address the skill of sense-making as a skill or a training or tools to enhance people's ability to be master map builders or to recognize, just even to be able to recognize that, you know, at first to have people keep in the forefront of their mind, almost remi remain mindful of the fact that they are capable of map building because there's a lot of people that will take that away from you and say you aren't, you know, that's, it's a great way to have power where people say you aren't cap you aren't qualified. Only I'm qualified to have the map so that you are capable of map building. It's what you've done since birth. You're good at it. Your brain's incredibly good at it and keep your eye on the ball. Notice when that ability is being impaired or enhanced. Even that is a skill, a meta skill, right? To be taught. So let's say in your compass example, you know, you, 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 you're like, you can't believe it, but you're going to set out to chart some part of the Rockies without, you know, your phone, just with your compass. And every time you begin, you know, your phone's still on and you're getting these text messages or people are sending you maps and you're just getting confused and muddled and you don't know why you haven't made any progress on this thing. Just knowing, well, you know, you set out to do this thing and these things are going to distract you would be kind of all you need to do to fend off and, pr and protect your ability to sense make. So without even drawing your attention to that, to, without even formally taking some time to look at, look at it and get clear conceptually and experientially when it's on and off and what's controlling it, you know, you're kind of, you might be dead in the water without realizing it. And so now uh, the obvious curiosity is around, well, what does a, system to help you build the map looks like, how would you build that? Right. And how do we know that it actually is valid? Yeah. How do you know it's not just a map? Right. Is, how, how do you know, you know, as, um, Bonita Roy has pointed out in, in an episode with Daniel Thorson, it's amazing, wonderful emerge podcast, uh, that how do, how do you know you can't just go meta on the meta on the meta on the meta? Mm -hmm. How do you know that you're at, at top meta? Right. And we're going to attack that full on in the next episode. Well, thank you, Jill, and thank you for listening to the Sensemaking Podcast.